Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, in a previous program, you were discussing an article published in the online version of Christianity Today entitled, What If We Don't Have to Choose Between Evolution and Adam and Eve? Mm-hmm. You felt that it was very important to address some of the assertions made by the person proposing the idea embodied in that article's title. And so you want to discuss the issue further in today's program. Yes, Scott. We considered several ideas proposed by S. Joshua Swamidas, the author of the book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve, The Surprising Science of Universal Ancestry. And he's the one who was interviewed for the Christianity Today article. But there was more in the article that we didn't discuss. And as you pointed out, Scott, I think it's important to address what it said. These ideas were published in the online version of Christianity Today, a magazine a lot of Christians read, and I'd like people to understand what some of his proposals mean, as well as point out things he says that are simply wrong. Oh, good. So, Dr. Scripture, should we give the reference for the benefit of those who want to read the article for themselves? Sure, Scott. Okay, and we'll repeat this at the end of the program. The article, What If We Don't Have to Choose Between Evolution and Adam and Eve, was published January 30th, 2020. The author, Rebecca Randall, interviewed Dr. Swamidas. The easiest way to find the article is to go to the ChristianityToday.com website and in the search bar, type the name Swamidas, spelled S-W-A-M-I-D-A-S-S, and the article will come up. (laughs) Okay. So the title, What If We Don't Have to Choose Between Evolution and Adam and Eve, gives a clue as to what Swamidas proposes. His thesis is that the evolution of modern man from ape-like animals and the special creation of Adam and Eve can both be true and accepted on scientific and biblical grounds. His key proposal for how this can be done is that humanity's genetic ancestry needs to be understood as being distinct from our genealogical ancestry. In other words, genetic ancestry and genealogical ancestry are separate concepts, and the distinction between them needs to be taken into consideration when interpreting the Bible. He proposes that the Bible does not, in fact cannot, be referring to the genetic ancestry of humanity. Here are his words, quote, Scripture can't possibly be talking about genetic ancestry. It has to be talking about genealogical ancestry, unquote. And your response to that statement in our last program, Scott, was very appropriate. Do you remember what you said? Well, I don't recall my exact words, but basically I said, I don't see the difference between genetic and genealogical ancestry. Don't we get our genetic makeup from our ancestors who make up our genealogy? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Our genealogical ancestry is our genetic ancestry, isn't it? Well, Scott, Dr. Swamida says no, Hmm. and here's why. He defines genetic ancestry as the source of the entire genetic makeup of an individual. So the origin of the exact DNA sequence down to each of the 3.15 billion nucleotides which make up an individual's DNA is what he defines as the genetic ancestry. So using that definition... 
Your mother is only half your genetic ancestor because your father is the other half. And your grandfather is only one quarter of your genetic ancestor. And on it goes back through your ancestry to the point that, let's say an ancestor from 20 generations in the past is essentially not your genetic ancestor at all even though he or she is 100% your genealogical ancestor. Now, at first glance, that may seem legitimate. My exact DNA sequence is not the same as my great-great-grandfather's, but the genetic information that makes me human, in contrast to the information that makes a chimpanzee a chimpanzee, did come from my great-great-grandfather, who got his genetic makeup from his great-great-grandfather, who extending all the way back to Noah's three sons and their wives, got their genetic makeup from Adam and Eve. They, we, are all genetically human. So I would submit that regardless of how many generations we could count in between ourselves and Adam, Adam is 100% our genetic ancestor. Unless genetic information from someone or something not human was mixed into the genealogical line of Adam and Eve. And that is exactly what Swami Das says did happen from the very beginning after the creation of Adam and Eve. Yes, he proposed that when God created Adam and Eve, there already was a whole population of human-like organisms present. Mm -hmm. And those human-like organisms had evolved from ape-like animals, just as evolution claims. And then, I guess Swami Das assumes that they reproduced with Adam and Eve's children. And what do we call them? Creatures or human-like evolved apes? I mean, according to Swamidas, they were not created by God like Adam, so technically they weren't even creatures. Well, I don't know, Scott. He just vaguely says they were created in a different way. Here's how he put it. Quote, if we keep straight what the science is actually saying, the story of Genesis could be true as literally as you could imagine it, with Adam being created by dust and God breathing into his nostrils and Eve being created from his rib. But evolution is happening outside the garden, and there are people out there who God created in a different way and who end up intermingling with Adam and Eve's descendants. It's not actually in conflict with evolutionary science, unquote. Well, first let me say, evolutionary science has no quarter for creation, and the idea of God creating Adam out of the dust of the ground is in direct conflict with any evolutionary proposal ever made. And, as I pointed out in our previous program, if there were creatures around suitable for Adam to mate with, why was it necessary for God to also create Eve? Mm. Remember the account in Genesis 2, where it appears the Lord was giving Adam an object lesson? Scott, read Genesis 2, 18. Okay, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. No suitable helper. And yet supposedly, there was a whole population of eligible brides <laughs> just outside the garden. Well, this kind of scenario would only be concocted to accommodate evolution. 
which is what even well-meaning believers have been trying to do for over a hundred years by coming up with the idea of a coexisting population of hominids alongside Adam and Eve. It's an attempt to hold on to the literal account of creation as recorded in Genesis chapter 2 and allow for the evolution of organisms as proposed by evolutionists, most of whom are atheists. Of course, included in the theory of evolution is the time frame encompassing not just millions, but billions of years, from the proposed initial spontaneous generation of the first living cells to the emergence of modern man. And trying to accommodate all that time in the creation account creates other problems for the accurate interpretation of Genesis. It sure does. And Scott, something that really concerns me when talking with believers who think they need to incorporate evolution into their interpretation of the Bible is that they don't understand the flaws in the claims of evolution. Let's look at something Swami Das himself says to illustrate my point. Remember, his main thesis is if we make a distinction between genetic and genealogical ancestry, we don't have to choose between evolution and the biblical Adam and Eve. He says, quote, Scripture can't possibly be talking about genetic ancestry. It has to be talking about genealogical ancestry. And then moving forward, he goes on to say, As Christians, we have a lot of anxiety over what science is telling us about Adam and Eve. But these conflicts are based on what science says about our genetic ancestors. If we focus on genealogical ancestors instead, there might be far less conflict than we first imagined, unquote. So then the interviewer asks, well, can you outline what evolutionary science has suggested about Adam and Eve up until your research? And Swamidas answers, quote, my book doesn't exist to challenge the evolutionary science. The two starting points are, humans share common ancestry with the great apes. It really looks like God created us through a providentially governed process of common descent. The second idea is, it seems like there's no moment when our ancestors drop down to a single couple in the last few hundred thousand years, unquote. But Scott, he's simply wrong. He says, it seems like there's no moment when our ancestors drop down to a single couple in the last few hundred thousand years. Well, what it seems like is irrelevant. Genetic research has demonstrated that the human race can trace its ancestry back to a single couple and using the evolutionary timetable. They lived around 150,000 years ago. That's the mitochondrial Eve, right? You've talked about her on several occasions. That's right. And to be precise, the genetic research using mitochondrial DNA refers just to our female ancestry. So the evolutionists, tongue-in-cheek, said they were searching for Eve. However, what they found was astounding, because the research did indeed point to a single female being responsible for the entire modern human race. They determined she lived approximately 150,000 years ago, and though it was very controversial at the time— that was back in the late 1980s. It didn't take long for the evolutionary community to accept the validity of the results. And I'm frankly surprised Swami Das doesn't either know or acknowledge that. Furthermore, that time frame of 150,000 years is based on the evolutionary assumption that chimps and humans evolved from a common ancestor 5 million years ago. 
However, research a decade later, using known ancestral lineages over a known number of generations, showed that the mitochondrial Eve they were searching for lived approximately 6,500 years ago. So, in reality, the empirical data demonstrates the female genetic ancestor of the entire human race lived around 6,500 years ago. Pushing that date back to 150,000 years is based solely on evolutionary assumptions, not measured results. The point I'm trying to make is this. What Swamidas claims is wrong. He's trying to accommodate what he thinks are scientific facts that the evolutionists can't support. He says he doesn't challenge evolutionary science on these two points. Humans share common ancestry with the great apes, and there's no moment when our ancestors drop back to a single couple. He accepts those two claims, one which is wrong even by evolutionary standards, and then he proposes that we can accept both evolution and the biblical account of the creation of Adam and Eve. I propose that the two ideas are not compatible, and we do need to choose between them. Well, Dr. Scripture, we said we would cite the reference for the article again. That's right, Scott. And the best way to find the article, What If We Don't Have to Choose Between Evolution and Adam and Eve, is to go to the website christianitytoday.com and in the search bar type Swamidas, S-W-A-M-I-D-A-S-S, and the article will come up. And the best way to determine your ancestry, genealogical or genetic, is to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And that's not what I say. That's what scripture says.